0: May be seated. For those of you that are choosing to utilize our children's ministry in the back, now would be the time to be able to uh, check your child in. We do that through first grade, and uh, and certainly if you haven't checked your child in. Uh, yet you can do that, but you can also do it before the service. Uh, we love having kids in the congregation with us, in the sanctuary here with us. And uh, so for those of you that are uh, having your kids stay in with us, we have uh, bulletins for them to be able to follow, follow along with the service each and every week and, uh, and some things that uh, can help them follow along with the sermon too. And so you can grab that as well. Um, we have been going through just our confession The uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession, and and we've just been looking at how this confession summarizes key doctrines in Scripture, and we've been slowly just working our way through each paragraph, and uh, and particularly have been looking at the last few weeks what our confession says about the Holy Scriptures, and I just wanted to read for us paragraph chapter five before we uh, move on to the sermon this morning, but paragraph chapter five. Uh, or paragraph 5 of chapter 1 on, of the Holy Scriptures and the Confession says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures in the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory To God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the holy spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts and so while while we can read uh, and, and and see even from an evidential standpoint the, the truthfulness of Scripture is really why we embrace it as a church is because the Spirit of God living in our lives bears witness to its truthfulness um, regarding all things pertaining, as the Apostle Peter says, to life and to godliness. And so that is paragraph 5 of chapter 1 of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther... Chapter Eight. We've been going over the last several weeks through this book, and um, and as you know by now, this is a book where the the context is quite dark. Uh, there are some pretty there are some wicked, sinister things going on in Ahasuerus's, uh kingdom. And kids, if you've been following with us, right? Ahasuerus is he is a he's a bad king. He rules over this 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 kingdom that uh, that that really acts the way that you would expect a kingdom to act when it's ruled by bad, bad men. And, and last week we looked at how, um, how Haman, the, the, the guy in the story who uh, was planning to exterminate all the Jewish people in the provinces, all of God's covenant people, how that was found out, how he was, ended up being executed in and, and our chapter this morning, Picks up immediately after the events of Haman's execution, and so we're going to pick up here with chapter eight. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Uh, we uh, again pay attention to while to the fact that while we don't see God's name at all in this book, His providence, uh, his, his His just this guiding hand of how He's preserving His people, uh, His covenant people, how He's keeping them safe uh, in the midst of Babylon is pervasive in this book, and and we should certainly have the the capacity to be able to look up from this book and see God's providential hand preserving us in our lives uh, as well. And so so Esther chapter 8, this is what the Holy Spirit of God says. It says, "On, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told... What he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Verse 3 Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite. And again, think of Malachite here, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it pleased the king and if I found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, second time that's mentioned, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces Of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king, And seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses, and were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, And to annihilate, right? that language is familiar to us, any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included. And to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready to, were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, verse 15 and 16 and 17, then Mordecai And this is interesting, declare themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we thank you that um, that your spirit has preserved this word. And we ask that your spirit would help us to understand this word. And Lord, help us as a result of having spent time together studying scripture and working through this passage. Help us to see Christ more clearly. Help us to savor Christ more. And we love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said a moment ago, we pick up the events of chapter 8. It it happens on the same day as the events in in chapter 7. And we see here the inheritance, if you will, of both Queen Esther and uh, and Mordecai that that lead ultimately to the preservation of the Jewish people, of God's covenant people, right? Queen Esther, she inherits the home of her conquered, uh, who she called foe and enemy, right? Haman. And and Mordecai, he takes the position of Haman, right? The the position that he should have had from the get-go, right? When we uh, kind of out of nowhere, read that this guy named Haman that we're introduced to in chapter three rises to prominence immediately after Mordecai had thwarted the plans, uh, the assassination plans of, Queen, of King Ahasuerus. But but Mordecai he takes the position of Haman, so he he becomes a type of uh, of prime minister or a, a visor, if you will. And the the king gives Mordecai the signet ring that he had given. Uh, to Haman, and we, we see that in verse 2. And, and we see by the close of this chapter that Mordecai is dressed in uh, royal robes of, of blue and of white. He has a uh, a great golden crown, and he has a robe of fine linen and purple, according to verse 15, if you're following along there. Now, there are a few things that that we need to just pay particular attention to, as it relates to the positions of both Queen Esther and Mordecai, and even just the environment of the kingdom itself. Right there were people within that kingdom that despised God's covenant people. Right the 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 spirit of the Amalekites we talked about several weeks ago. The spirit of the Amalekites it was uh, was still lingering in this kingdom, despite the defeat, despite the execution of Haman, right? That's one of the reasons I think we have Haman's connection to the Amalekites brought back into the picture a couple of times in this chapter, right? People in this kingdom, they were kind of swept up, if you will, in the plan of Haman, the Amalekite, to, to, again, to to take out, to exterminate all the Jewish people within the provinces, uh, the 127 provinces of the kingdom. They were swept up into doing what the Amalekites before them couldn't do, didn't do. But these same people that are swept up into that plan and, and have given, you know, three cheers to that edict that has gone out, the wicked edict that had gone out, right? Those same people now have, to, they, they've they realized now that their queen is Jewish. Their queen is Jewish. They now realize that the guy that took Haman's place is also Jewish. This visor, this prime minister, if you will, is Jewish, right? This right hand to the king is Jewish. Yet, regardless of all of that, those that are engaged in, in this sort of conflict that, that have kind of set themselves uh, or set their hearts on having this conflict, this battle, this, this edict fulfilled, if you will, they're, they, they're not just going to put their weapons down, which is interesting to me. So, so we, we see in this chapter we see Queen Esther pleading with the king, and she's emotional. She's emotional here. Right, our text says, "quote She fell at his the king's feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman." All right? What a stark contrast that we have here in Esther, right? She, she moves, again, if we're keeping in mind the, the context of, of this historical narrative, she moves from being isolated and, and frankly, emotionally disengaged from her people in chapter four, perhaps concer- concerned more about herself or her own preservation. She moves from that to identifying herself with her people and determining, no matter what her fate may be, to make things right? Right? She goes as far as to say to the king, if I have found favor with you, preserve them. Right? If I am pleasing in your eyes, preserve them. And she's so caught up in this in all, in all the right ways that we see her say, quote, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Right? Verse 6. There's no, there's no distance any longer between Esther and her people, right? Esther's committed to, to going all the way for her people, refusing to untangle her position as queen of the kingdom with the fate of her people. And again, this is a stark contrast to where she was earlier in the historical narrative. And she, again, she appeals cleverly to Ahasserus' concerns. Esther was again his favorite wife, and kids, you should only have one wife or one husband. And so this isn't the model to follow here. But she's she's appealing here to 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 the uh to this this wicked king's um senses, the things that drive him, the things that he cares about and and he cares about his favorite wife if you will and, and more more than caring about his favorite wife as it regard as it relates to the welfare welfare of her person, it, it's important for him and for the kingdom that his favorite wife be happy. Right? We saw the shame that would come that came to Ahasuerus and to the the, the embarrassment of Ahasuerus in front of the kingdom when his wife you know Vashti in chapter 1 was unhappy and defied the king right this wicked king he liked Esther and he wanted to keep Esther as she was right he 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 wanted to keep her like she was things seemed to be moving along without a bump in the road from his vantage point and all of a sudden there's a bump in the road and he doesn't want things to change as it relates to his queen and Esther knew this she knew this and she leveraged it to get what she wanted from the king, which is deliverance for the Jewish people. And the king grants her request, though not without expressing to her and to Mordecai that he's given a lot already. He says initially, I've given Esther the house of Haman and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. He's saying, I've given you a lot. That's, that's what he's saying when, in, that, in that verse there, verse 7. But then he goes on in verse 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked, verse 8. All right, so, so the king says, I've given you a lot, but if it makes you happy, I'll grant this request too, and, and he gives Esther and Mordecai free reign, if you will, over the edict that goes out into all of the, the the kingdom. He gives them permission to use his authority, his ring, and his name to to counteract his previous edict, which is Haman's uh, wicked plan, and in the counter in uh, the counter to the old edict comes through the issuing of a new edict. That's, that's how the old edict is countered. The, the way edicts worked was as the king said. They couldn't be reversed. He couldn't rescind them. But, but no problem. No problem, the king says. We'll just issue a new one that completely contradicts the original one. No problem. All right? All right, that's the way that an arbitrary and a tyrannical kingdom operates. Right? It's no wonder that there would be people in the kingdom that would follow the original edict that can't be revoked right and and that there would be people that would heed the new edict that also can't be revoked right so this new edict is written according to the, the feisty mordecai right who the one who who if if again esther was kind of subtle if she was um she was subversive in the way that she moved the king toward a particular objective. Mordecai was not that at all. Uh, he uh, put Haman to open shame in his refusing to pay any sort of respect to, to Haman, and, and, and so Mordecai is the one who, who writes this new edict, and, and it's, it's not subtle, and it goes out into all 127 provinces. Uh, there, there wouldn't be a, a person in the kingdom at all that wouldn't know of this new edict and the way in which Mordecai crafts it takes aim at the enemies of the Jewish people. Again, in, in all of those 127 provinces, it takes aim at the Amalekites that that would align themselves with that spirit or with that animosity. And so not not just um, ethnically Amalekites, but, but people that would identify, would have sympathy for um, the The heart posture, if you will, of the Amalekites. And that that edict specifically allows the Jews in every city to gather and defend themselves. It asserts that it's their right to do so according to the king. And the edict picks up the language of the original edict. Right, again, this is kind of the directness here of Mordecai, but, but it, it redirects that language toward, towards the enemies of God's covenant people. Instead of God's covenant people being, quote, destroyed, killed, and annihilated, we, as we read about in chapter 3, and, and it, that language gets brought back in in the last chapter as well. But instead, this new edict has the enemies of God being the ones that would be destroyed and killed and annihilated. Verse eleven. Yet, unlike the wicked edict of Haman, Mordecai's edict is a call to to a holy war, if you will, one that the Lord commanded. Uh, if if you think back to just the origins of this division between God's covenant people and the Amalekites, right? It was it, this was a, a call to war that the Lord had commanded. Uh, mordecai 's ancestors to complete in total again, we talked about that in, in when we went through chapter three together, but the jewish people they 're still dealing with the repercussions of this generational disobedience when God called the um, the Jewish people to wipe out all of the Amalekites right from the get go and the edict served here that Mordecai issues as a warning to their enemies that the Jewish people will in fact have total victory over their enemies. So the edict makes it clear Haman the Amalekite is dead. Right. He, his plan no longer has the authority of the king behind it, although we know the edict in the ways that kingdom works, it still kind of does has the the authority of the king behind it. But but Mordecai says if you align yourself with the Amalekites, if you align yourself with Haman's plan, you're going to be destroyed. God's people will not be Destroyed and and the warning is severe. The Jewish people would defend themselves against any people that may attack them, quote, children and women included. Verse eleven. One commentator puts it this way: Haman's edict against the Jews was not merely a matter of personal animosity. And again, we've seen we've seen this. We've discussed this. It was an expression of the age-old enmity between the Amalekites and God's people. King Saul's attack on Agag in 1 Samuel 15 was part of that ongoing war between God's people and his enemies, the Amalekites, rather than a personal vendetta. Yet Saul failed to carry it through completely, a failure that led to the present difficulties of God's people. Now Mordecai planned to finish what his ancient kinsmen um, we see that in Esther two five. What his ancient kinsman had left incomplete, his edict was a continuation of that same ongoing struggle of holy war. So the Jewish people are to ready themselves for battle as as that edict goes out. And our chapter ends with Mordecai going out from the people, dressed as royalty, indicating his position in the kingdom. And where there was once fasting and weeping, and lamenting, and sackcloth, and ashes, there's now, quote, gladness, joy, honor, and light throughout the kingdom. And as the edict spreads along with the celebrations, people, as we saw the the chapter, the way the chapter ended, they, quote, declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Verse 17. So, a few takeaways for us that we'll work through together. They're takeaways that you can find in your worship guide. And there's, there's a lot of overlap between these three, which is intentional. And what I want, what my prayer is, is that, that looking at these three takeaways together, it gives us real gospel hope, real gospel hope. And and the first is this, that our circumstances, whatever our circumstances are, right? We, we are all facing different circumstances uh, in this room this morning, but whatever our circumstances are, they should drive us to the Lord. Our circumstances should drive us to the lord and, and I want to pick up on a couple of things that, that showcase for us misplaced hope, the, the misplaced hope that the Jewish people have misplaced hope that the people uh, that uh, the, the, um, were not a part of god 's covenant people they 're misplaced hope in this wicked kingdom as well first. Just as there is no indicator of the Jewish people turning to God in their, uh, as we saw them earlier in this book, you know, they didn't turn to God seemingly in their fasting and weeping and lamenting and sackcloth and ashes. Right back in chapter four, so there's no there's no um, clear turning to God in their gladness or their joy. Or their honor or their lightness, remember that these are people that are still these are Jewish people that are still willfully living in Babylon they they would have had the opportunity to to go home a while ago. Many of them were born in this kingdom, but these were not people that we 're looking at as being spiritually healthy. And so there's no evidence either in their mourning nor in their happiness and joy and gladness that the the prospect of deliverance is on the way. We don't see uh, that oriented toward God who's their deliverer, right? And and based on all the evidence, the sorrow and the joy is fueled by their circumstances, right? That that's kind of as far as it goes. And and I'm not saying that, that circumstances shouldn't affect us emotionally, right? Our, our circumstances should affect us. Whatever those circumstances are, they should affect us emotionally. God gave us emotions, and our emotions, though, can, can serve our worship. When we think about them properly, our emotions can serve our worship of the Lord in different seasons of life. And so while we see these different expressions of emotion in the book of Esther... And we, we see joy and gladness and happiness and all these different things here in chapter 8. We don't see those emotions in service um, to worshiping the triune God. We see them rather in service to just uh, circumstance, circumstantial change. Right? The wind is blowing in a, in a different direction. But, but for an example of how our emotions can serve uh, our worship of the Lord, right if you 're familiar with the psalms at all most of the psalms are uh psalms of lament right that that lament is a, is uh, is an emotion and through the psalmness of vocabulary that is given to us to express deep sorrow for particular situations, but it is an expression uh, that is directed in a worshipful way. Uh, toward the Lord, right, and and so it, it our emotions can can certainly serve um, a, a purpose that's higher than just being happy or it's, uh, or upset about your present circumstances, right? But what we see in this historical narrative of Esther is that the emotions they terminate again in earthly circumstances. That's as high as they aim. The the hope here, particularly in chapter 8, the hope doesn't get any higher than the sky. Okay, that, that's as high as it gets. The impending doom of the Jewish people should have, uh, in their emotions, driven them toward repentance and faith in the triune God. The call to victory and seeing Queen Esther as their queen and seeing Mordecai as, as their visor And and seeing the ultimate demise of Haman should have turned them in the emotions that we see them express toward gratitude to the Lord, which will be the point I get at in just a minute, but toward the Lord who sees them, who hears them, who's near to them, who delivers them. But it doesn't do that. We don't see that happen in this chapter, right? Their sorrow and their joy, it's not Godward. It's not God focused, and it's not vertical, it's horizontal, All right? The Jewish people living in this kingdom, they lived like materialists. They lived like materialists. What John Lennon captured with his song, Imagine, if you remember that song, All right? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. All right, that's how the Jewish people lived functionally in this kingdom, and the same is true for the rest of the citizens that we see operating in the kingdom. All right, what, what's interesting to me is how this chapter ends. All right? Up until chapter 7, we had Esther pretending, pretending for years not to be Jewish, out of fear for what that would mean in the kingdom. Right, and at the close By the close of of going into chapter 7 and chapter, or by the close of chapter 8, we have people all throughout the kingdom pretending to be Jewish out of fear, right? So we go from Esther keeping her identity a secret to other people in the kingdom now they want to pretend that they're a part of God's covenant people. And, And this is out of fear, not of God but fear of man, right? Out of fear for the Jewish people in light of the new edict that was issued. So at this point of great turning, right, we see this deliverance beginning to happen. We, we see that it's orchestrated by God, yet we don't see a turning toward God in thankfulness, in gratitude. Right? We don't see a turning to God even for the strength to conquer enemies, Right, we don't see a, a readying to, to move back into the promised land, even. And we won't see that in this historical narrative. Now, again, why is this important for us to notice this? Why is it important for us to notice this? It's because the chief reflex in our life needs to be one of turning to the Lord. Right? That needs to be our chief reflex, is turning to The Lord turning to other people is wonderful when you have trusted confidants, but even that it should not be our chief reflex in life, no matter what comes. Our chief reflex should be a turning to the Lord. We have to turn to Him in the worst moments of our lives, and we have to turn to Him in the best moments of our lives. We don't want to profess Christ yet live functionally as materialists. Like we don't want Lennon's song to be our song. That we hum along to in life. All right, we we want to join in with, with the, the, the music of the spheres declaring the glory of our triune God. And, and when we make it the habit of our lives to turn to the Lord in devotion, the circumstantial heat in our life, whatever that circumstantial heat is, it will draw out of us not rage, not anger but deeper worship, deeper communion with God. It won't draw out bitterness. It won't draw out fear. It won't draw out pride. It'll draw out worship. That's what happens when you make going to the Lord the reflex of your life. In in the good times and the bad, whatever whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, what comes out when you make going to the Lord the habit of your life, is worship. And again, we, we, we see that behavior modeled for us big time in the Psalms. Right. So we're faced with a question. Right? Where do your circumstances drive you? Where do they drive you? Right. Think about where you are this very moment. Right. You, you may be suffering immensely, or, or maybe... You're experiencing a joyful season in life, right? In either season, in, in whatever providence has for you, are you turning toward the Lord, or is your hope seemingly in this life only? Okay, so our circumstances should drive us to the Lord. Secondly, and again, we'll see overlap with all three of these, but gratitude is, is genuinely the response of one who's been saved, Gratitude is the the response of when he's been saved. While the Jewish people weren't turning toward God or acknowledging his acting on their behalf, we as Christians, we know that God really has acted on our behalf. He really has moved toward us in Christ without compromising his holiness, his glorious standard. He's moved toward us because we would never move toward him. He's moved toward us in Christ. Right. And Jesus, he, he didn't make the deliverance of his people a possibility on the cross. He, he made atonement definite for his people. Right? Not, not one drop of the blood of Christ was wasted, and, and we should exhibit in our lives gladness and in joy, and in honor, and in, in lightness that, that we see in Esther 8, but it instead, again, of it being fixed on our present circumstances, it should be driven, it should spring forth from this deep, eternal well that we drink from regularly, the, the living water, Jesus Christ, John four fourteen, 14. Right? Drinking deep from that well, it takes things like gladness and joy and honor. And it, and it translates them, again, into worship. It directs them toward our triune God. And the same, again, is, is true in our seasons of sorrow. When you drink from that eternal well, you're lamenting, you're fasting, you're mourning, you're sackcloth and ashes, figuratively speaking, in case you were thinking about dressing in that, but are directed right to, to, to the God who's near you right and who's your hope in, in the midst of those dark seasons, those, those deep groanings you experience because of, of pain become worship toward the Lord your God, who's your treasure, who's your deliverer. And it's our remembrance of what the, our Lord has done that motivates that type of gratitude. We, we were headed for an eternal hell. That's where we were all headed. Yet God, he acted for his glory and on our behalf. we, We were permanently cut off from God, yet he reconciled himself to us, solely his work, solely his work, so that we could live at peace with him, so that we could live at peace with one another. And when we internalize the significance of our salvation, Right, which is the crux of point two here. When we internalize the significance of our salvation, that we really have been delivered, and not just delivered, but we've been delivered by God. Right? Gratitude to the Lord and a generous, patient disposition toward others is the overflow of our hearts. So, so how do we drink deeply from that well of remembrance? Right? And, I, and I'm not telling you anything new here. This is stuff you've, you already know, right? How do we drink the living water as Christians? You, you do it by participating in the means that he's, he's gifted you to grow you. Right? Word, word, prayer, sacrament. Right? Those are the, the chief rhythms of worship that we partake in each Lord's Day. Right? You need to avail yourself Avail yourself of these things throughout the week. Feast on Christ by feasting on his word. Right? Pray the word. Right? Your, your spiritual discipline should be like Groundhog Day. Right? You, just have that, you just got that rhythm. Right? You wake up, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And the Lord will use that to build you for eternity. This is how we cultivate gratitude toward the Lord. This is how we cultivate a remembrance of that glorious grand reality that he has saved us. And he saved us in Christ to the uttermost. No matter what sins we've committed, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, the Lord has saved us. And then finally... And maybe your mind was thinking this as we went through chapter 8 already, but our triune God will never contradict his own decree. Our triune God will never contradict his own decree. We see two contradictory edicts in the arbitrary kingdom of Ahasuerus. One says to exterminate God's people, the other say not to or you'll be killed. So which is it? Ahasuerus didn't care. Right, he did, he just didn't care. He couldn't even be bothered to review the new edict that he had Mordecai draft in his name that went out into the entire kingdom. Remember, this is the king that had drinks with Haman at the uh, when the first edict went out, and, and the entire kingdom is set into confusion. He's just sitting having drinks with the guy who plans to exterminate all God's covenant people. But Ahasuerus, he he didn't care about his kingdom. He cared about his king his kingdom in that he cared about. He cared about his, his power and his wealth and his, in holding on to those kind of things. He cared about his image, but he didn't care about the people in the kingdom, right? And it would have been perfectly legitimate for some people to follow the first edict and for others to follow the second, right? That's, that's what happens when there is arbitrary legislating, right? We, we we're by nature children of wrath. Okay, Ephesians 2, 3, and, and we're fully deserving of, of God's judgment over our sin, over our rebellion. And, and if we served an arbitrary God, much like we see this arbitrary king in, a, in the book of Esther, right? And if this God had an arbitrary kingdom, there truly would be no hope for us. There would be no hope for us. Are we on good terms with him? Right? Are we saved today and lost tomorrow? Right? Things seem to be going well at the moment. Is he warming us up so that when the shoe drops, it'll be all the more devastating in our life? Again, we, and we may not verbalize things like that, but sometimes we functionally act that way, right? The deep pit in our stomach can testify to that. Yet we have to see that God is nothing... God is not arbitrary. His decree is not arbitrary. His co- decree can't be contradicted, and his kingdom is good. It's good. it's truly good. Right? And God, he's, he's unchangeable. Thus his posture toward us in Christ Jesus is unchangeable. Malachi 3:6. Right? Th- this is because his disposition toward us, right it, It's not based upon us. It's not based upon us. It's based upon him. It's not based upon our changeable emotions and behaviors. Right? God's salvation of us is, is grounded in him. Right? God's salvation is grounded in God. Salvation not only comes from the Lord, but it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Quote, surely God is my salvation, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah twelve two, And our triune God, who is unchangeable and who is our salvation, he, he decreed in eternity past that his righteous wrath for sin be poured out on Christ Jesus on the cross so, so that we could be spared from an eternal hell, so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could live in his kingdom, right? the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. And God's decree, unlike Ahasuerus's, it can't be contradicted, nor could it ever be reversed, because his decree is the outworking of his good, unchanging character. And we can trace as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament that that what God has promised in our lives, he has delivered on. And that is the foundation for our future hope that God in Christ Jesus will return and will definitively make all things new. We can have hope in that coming. We can have hope that this this mustard seed faith that, that the Bible tells us is how his kingdom works, that that mustard seed faith really will grow into this large, beautiful thing this seemingly unnoticeable thing will grow into this you can't miss it sort of thing, right? Or when Jesus talks about his kingdom and, 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 and how it's leaven that will eventually leaven the, the whole lump, that, that God's kingdom really is leavening this world. It really is spreading and growing and expanding and he's drawing people to himself. We can have confidence in that, Because he's delivered on everything else. And we have the evidence of that. Even in a seemingly dark book like Esther, where his name's not even mentioned. God is faithful and he's present to his covenant people that are at best quite spiritually anemic in their faith toward him. Yet he preserves them, and we'll again see this on our... uh, next week on just the final sermon through esther that he really did deliver them and and while they may not see that we are by god's grace alone sitting here so many years later and we're able to see god's good redemptive providential care in in this book and look up and see it in our lives and my prayer is, is that we would collectively be driven into deeper worship, deeper fellowship, deeper communion with our God who's near and our God who loves saving us and preserving us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I ask, Lord, for, for all of us, Lord, that whatever our circumstances are, God, that, Lord, that you would use those circumstances to drive us to yourself. God, that we would, by your grace, cultivate gratitude, knowing that you've done all the work of our salvation. And God, that you are unchangeable. And because our salvation is grounded in you and because your kingdom is grounded in you, Lord, everything that you said in your word finds fulfillment. And so thank you for this time that we have together. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you are a guest with us, this is the portion of our service where we take the Lord's Supper. And we don't require membership um, to partake of the Lord's Supper. What we do ask is that you are a Christian who is um, confessing sin, repenting of sin, and resting in Christ alone for your salvation, we ask that you have been baptized. Uh, and if you, you if you don't know that you are walking in the light, if you if you are wrestling with that, what we do ask as elders is that you would.